Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We are in a series called The Way of Jesus, a study in the Gospel of Mark. During this series, we want to spend time with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to live the way of Jesus. Thank you for joining us. Well, good morning, friends. Hey, I'm, uh, I'm Luke. I get to lead our high school ministry and have the privilege of uh, preaching today. So I'm so glad to get to worship uh, together. If you've got a Bible near you, which hopefully you can spot one under a seat, uh, you can go ahead and open it up. We're going to be in Mark's Gospel, Chapter 8 today. Mark's Gospel, Chapter 8. And just kind of put a finger in there. We'll, we'll get to our passage in just a minute in Mark 8. Um, But Mark's gospel is something we've been spending some time in for a while now this year and something we're going to continue to spend some time in in parts of 2023. So you may wonder, why are we spending so much time uh, giving, you know, attention verse by verse, bit by bit to Mark's portrait of the person and the story of Jesus? It's because we want to be a people who give uh, a disciplined attention to the person, to the work of Jesus, so that we can recognize him and imitate him in our own lives. That's what we're after. That's what we're trying to do each and every week as we come and we study something that Jesus has done in his earthly ministry, according to Mark. So uh, we've been saying this a handful of times throughout our series. If you're following in your notes, we're spending time with Jesus, learning to live the way of Jesus. That's what we're after. Now, in, uh, in 1999, anybody remember 1999? Kindergarten, right here. That was awesome. Yeah. In, uh, in 1999, <laughs> sorry for making you feel a little sweaty. In 1999, there was a research project conducted by some scientists at Harvard, and they were studying perception. Perception. How does our, our brain make sense of and interpret reality? How do we connect the dots? What do we notice? And, and, and how does that all work, right? So they're studying perception. And they did this famous, uh, famous experiment. I'm sure many of you maybe have seen the, the video that they uh, conducted in this experiment. I saw it several years ago. It made the rounds on you know, YouTube and social media in different places. And there's been different... Uh, renditions, repeats of this experiment done over the years. So maybe you've seen some slightly different versions, but the original one that I saw goes like this. The participants in the experiment are asked to sit down and watch a video. That's like a 90 second video. And in the video, I had the same experience I'm watching, right? In the video, there's six people and three of them are wearing blue jeans and white shirts. Three of them are wearing blue jeans and black shirts. Each of them is a team, a white team and a black team. And each team is given a basketball. And they're asked to, uh, the people watching the video, myself, right, and, and others participating in this experiment, you're asked to watch the video and observe how many times the basketball is passed among the team in white. And so then uh, for the next 30, 45 seconds, you're watching the screen and the people are kind of intermingling and intermixing. They're weaving in and out of each other, bounce passes and chest passes and little tosses here and there. And you're just kind of carefully counting and, and scanning, right? Okay, there's one pass, two pass. Three, four, five, right? And you're counting it up and trying to keep track of how many passes take place among the white team. All the while, these people are weaving it out. And eventually, 30, 45 seconds go by, they kind of exit stage, and then this, you know, question pops up on screen, and it asks you, okay, how many times was the basketball passed among the white team? And uh, what the researchers found is it's actually pretty easy to track the count of the team that's passing the ball. 
Uh, almost everybody who ever did this experiment got the correct answer. It's like it was 15 or 16, right? They, they could get the correct answer or they could get it very, very close within one, maybe, maybe two. Almost everybody gets that right. But then, and this is what got me, a question, and I'm watching this, right? It, it pops up on screen and says, okay, you got that correct maybe, but did you notice the man in the gorilla suit walk across the stage and beat his chest? And I, I, I saw that question on screen for the first time. I'd never seen this video, had no idea what to expect. And I was like, get out of town. That did not happen. I watched that so closely. And then they re-rolled the tape. They rewind it back and they play it back for you. And sure enough, there was a guy in a full body gorilla outfit who walks across the stage, goes into the middle of the thing and does this Tarzan and just walks right off. And I, I mean, my jaw was on the floor. I was un, unreal. How could I have possibly looked at, stared, focused intently on this thing for 30, 60 seconds, however long it is, thinking I'm taking in every single moment, watching so closely and missed the most obvious plane of things in the world. I mean, it was right there in front of my eyes and I didn't perceive it. I didn't perceive it. What the researchers found is that about 50% of people who watch the video for the first time do not see the gorilla. This goes totally unnoticed, past our radar, not in our perception at all. Now, I know what some of you are thinking because um, had I not already been tricked by this video, I would have been thinking the same thing. Some of you are thinking, 50%. If I was one of those people watching the video, I'd have seen the gorilla, right? You're thinking, yeah, that, come on. These fools out there, they can't see. I got good eyes. My brain works real well. I would have seen the gorilla, right? But let me ask you, the time I've been telling the story, how many of you saw the gorilla walk past it? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just I can't I resist. I can't resist. I get that feeling though, right? We, we want to be people who believe that we are perceiving everything that's happening in reality. We have uh, access to truth. It's intuitive. It's instinctual. We just observe and we take it all in and we know and we understand. That's what we want to believe about ourselves. But it's not true. We need to have our eyes opened sometimes to things. So the phenomenon that the researchers observed, they came to call perceptual blindness. And if you're following your notes, here's what it is. Perceptual blindness is when we fail to perceive something in plain sight because we didn't expect to see it. It's not because we aren't focused. It's because we are selectively focused on what we want to see. We're selectively focused. We expect something to be there. We want something to be there. So we see that thing. But when something happens that we don't anticipate perceiving, we tend to miss it. That's perceptual blindness. Now, the story that we're going to read today in Mark's uh, gospel, chapter eight, uh, is not a story that contains any optical illusions or funny business, but it is a story about how to perceive what is true and to focus on what is important. So that's what we're running after in our message today. And I'll, I'll put this for you as a question. If you're following your notes, do we see as Christ wants us to see? Do we see as Christ wants us to see? Do we perceive who he is? Do we understand who he is? Do we have a category, a place in our own lives for his presence, his power, his voice, his work to show up? Are we capable of seeing not just him and his work, but actually seeing ourselves and seeing our work, our time, our money, our bodies, our entire lives through the lens of Jesus? Is he not just what we see, but how we see? That's perceiving Christ. Do we see 
as Christ wants us to see. Now, this passage in Mark 8 is a kind of a single narrative, but it's, it's sort of broken up into three different scenes. And we'll take each of these in turn. So scene one of Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Mark writes these words to tell the story of Jesus. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they'll collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. And when he'd taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. And they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. After the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over, about 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. Okay, end scene. This is kind of act one, scene one of the story that Mark is telling. And if you've been with us in Mark's gospel, or if you've uh, perhaps heard uh, these stories before, it probably sounds a little familiar to a story that is slightly more famous than this one. In Mark chapter six, just a couple chapters earlier, we preached on this a few weeks ago. There's a very, very similar event that takes place. Jesus has a crowd that follows him. And instead of sending them away, he feels compassion for their physical material needs. And so he does a miraculous feeding of the multitudes for the people who are there. He takes the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it to the people. And so many of those very same details are in this story in Mark chapter eight. So we're, we're meant to be seeing these things in parallel to see a, a comparison and contrast between these two events that kind of fit side by side. And if you know anything about Mark's gospel, we've been kind of saying things like this, right? He, he's, designing the narrative. He's a structured, intelligent writer as all the biblical writers are, all right? This is not a Bob Ross happy accident that this story takes place where it does to communicate what it does. There's no mere coincidence that we have these parallel stories in close proximity to one another. It's there by design. Now, if you were to sit down and read Mark's gospel all in one go, you'd finish Mark 6's miraculous feeding of the 5,000, which takes place among the Jewish people. Then you'd go from there, you'd read about the story. And we preach on all these, how Jesus offers a paradigm shift about what truly makes a person defiled, clean and unclean, right? It's not the external food that you eat. It's what emerges from the soul, the character, the heart, right? That's what defiles and makes unclean. So he offers that paradigm shift. And then from there, he immediately goes out into Gentile territory and begins to demonstrate this, that among the people that the Jews consider defiled or unclean or outsiders, Jesus goes and includes them, brings them into the fold, shares his ministry with them, right? Conducts mission among those people as well. So all of that culminates then in Mark chapter eight, the second feeding of the multitudes, it's nearly a mirror image of the first, but to understand the significance of this parallel story, we have to pay attention to the details of difference, right? 
Uh, I was talking with uh, my friend Drake this week about this story, and he's drawn my attention to some important things. I want to help us see these in the narrative so we can understand what Mark is doing in this story and setting it in in, uh, parallel to Mark chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. Now, in the feeding of the 5,000 story, there's 5,000 people, and there's uh, five loaves. Five in the Jewish culture, right? The Hebrew scriptures is associated with the Torah, the first five books of the law, the books of Moses, right? If you're, if you're learning to count as a little Jewish kid growing up, five, okay, that's the number of Torah. Five, that, that's the number of the books of Moses. And then there's two fish, uh, two is the number of the tablets of stone. And I'm not making this up, right? This is actually in Jewish culture, how, how they learned to write. It was, the numbers are often very symbolic. They have connections beyond just literal math, right? So two, the tablets of stone, this miracle takes place in Gentile territory. And at the end of, or sorry, in in Jewish territory. And at the end of this miracle, they gather how many? 12 basketfuls of leftovers. 12, the number of the tribes, the tribes of Israel, right? So this is meant to be read as a very Jewish event, a Jewish encounter, a Jewish miracle. But compare that to what unfolds in Mark chapter eight. In Mark chapter eight, there's, 4,000, 4,000. Four is the number. Uh, You think of the points on a compass, north, east, southwest. Four, the four corners of the earth to the ends of the earth. So four gives the connotation of everywhere, of of global consequence, global significance, global movement, right? It's about going to the four corners, the ends of the earth. Now there's seven loaves and they collect seven basketfuls at the end in this Miracle takes place in Gentile territory. And seven is the number of completion, number of totality, number of perfection. Goes back into the Sabbath rest of God in Genesis chapter one. It it connotates a finished work. And so, so here's the subtext, right? If you're following in your notes, Jesus, the Messiah, not only fills and gathers all of Israel, he fills and gathers all the nations of the world to himself. That's his finished work. That's the totalizing mission. That's the perfection of all that he aims to do. There's a movement from Mark 6, Mark 8, from the, the Jewish mission to the Gentile mission. We are meant to see an escalation and a fulfillment between both of these stories set side by side. Pastor Steve uh, talked about in previous week, right? how uh, Jesus, the Messiah, his mission is first and foremost to and through the Israelite people, the covenant community, but is meant to expand outward into people from every tribe and tongue and nation, people like you and me, right? So it's first to and through Israel. And he referenced, uh, and I wanna bring this up for us again, Isaiah chapter 49, verse six, speaking of the Messiah, this is prophetic word from Isaiah. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is Jesus once again in, in Mark's gospel, stepping into this calling, fulfilling this aspect of the Messiah's identity and work. So that's scene one. Now in scenes two and three, we'll start to see some perceptual blindness around how this event is understood. Mark chapter eight, verse 11. Let's go to scene two. Verse 11, he writes, the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. Now, if you're a astute reader of Mark's gospel, you just know that means trouble is on the horizon, right? Storms brewing. The Pharisees come, begin to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply. 
and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat and crossed to the other side and seen. So Jesus is asked for a sign and he responds with a sigh, <laughs> right? A groan inwardly. Oh, these people, it's exasperation, right? And why, of course, is he signing, sighing, right? It's because look at what has just occurred. I mean, he, he just got on the boat, crossed the lake, and he, he had just done this astounding, miraculous miracle, fed thousands of people with a sack lunch once again. I mean, not even for the first time, but for the second time. And yet these people want a sign from heaven. Now we could, we could cut the Pharisees some slack, you know, perhaps it's, I mean, it's a few miles away across the lake. Maybe they hadn't heard the news. Maybe they, they weren't aware of what had taken place, but, but that's really not what Mark wants us to understand, right? They come to him skeptical. They come to him to test him. They come to him with cynicism. They've probably heard about or were there for this miracle. And if not, they certainly were aware of the multitude of others, right? And they considered it demonic what he was doing rather than through the Holy Spirit, through the power of God. So there's a skepticism and a cynicism about uh, what they have perceived in the miraculous work of Jesus. So, so here's, here's the, the point, right? It's not that they lack awareness or they fail to perceive the meaning of Christ's miraculous feeding. On the contrary, if you're following your notes, the Pharisees didn't want to see what they saw. And they're asking for a sign compatible with their vision of who the Messiah is supposed to be. The Messiah is not supposed to go and mess with our interpretation of the Bible They don't want a Messiah who's going to expose their hypocrisy. They don't want a Messiah who's going to love and include and give his presence to the people that they don't like. They don't want a Messiah who's going to undermine their social standing and the reputation among their peers. And if we're honest, we don't want that Messiah either most of the time. And so we are apt to choose to be self-deluded and blind to what God is doing in the world because we do not accept the Messiah that we've been given. This is what the Pharisees are doing in this moment. They are wrestling, pushing back against who Jesus is revealing himself to be through his miraculous work. Sometimes we fail to perceive Jesus because we don't wanna see what he's showing us. Sometimes we, we fail to perceive Jesus because we're not ready to receive what he has for us, whether it's a word of, of rebuke or it's a word of uh, challenge. Hey, go forgive that person. No, Jesus. No, no, no. That can't be what God wants for me. Hey, hey, give up this, surrender this. You, you don't need it and it's got too big a hold on your life. No, no, no. I, that's really important to me. God wouldn't ask me to give up something I love. We fail to perceive Jesus. And sometimes in in the darker places of our life, the way that this shows up is we get into a place, and this is not always uh, the case, but but sometimes it is that because we we fail to perceive what God is, is doing from us, we don't want to see what God is showing us. We say the Lord is silent. God is absent. He doesn't speak. He won't reveal himself to me. 
and we disbelieve the existence, the presence, the power, and the voice of God because we simply don't anticipate. We don't want to see what God is actually saying and doing in our lives. And for some of us, I don't know if if this is you in in the room, but for some of us, you've been in that place a long time. You've been wrestling with God, disbelieving God, and disbelieving who, who Christ is and the story of the gospel and the claim he wants to make on your life. And part of that wrestling has brought you to a place of just there, there can't be any God. I can't give myself to this. I don't know where you're at if that's you this morning, but could I just present, submit something to you humbly? What if the thing that you've been wrestling with, denying, confronting, pushing against your whole life is actually the thing you most desperately need? What if in our disbelief of God and the story of the gospel, uh, what if in our, our, our longing for God's presence, our longing for God's speech, yet our rejection of it when we encounter it, what if the person that we most need to encounter has been standing in front of us the whole time, all along, showing us himself, revealing himself to us? What if he's right in front of us today and he's calling and he's speaking and saying, this is who I am. This is what I'm telling you. This is what I want for you. This is what I want from you. This is what I want with you. Would we have eyes to see that? Or would we place God in the box we've created for him, formed him in our own image and deny what Jesus would actually wanna do and speak in our lives through his spirit? Can I give you a, a paradox? The best and only way to know Jesus is to let go of what you think you know. It's the best way. It's probably the only way. Uh, Great spiritual teachers like St. John of the Cross throughout the ages have talked about the way of Jesus as the way of unknowing. That, you know, knowledge has its place, right? But ultimately, we're moving deeper and deeper and deeper into the mystery of God, trying to hear the whisper of his voice, to be attentive to his presence and his work in our lives and in the world. So the only one who really sees is the one who can say, I'm blind. That's the paradox of faith. That's the paradox of the gospel, the mystery that we've been called into to allow our perceptions to be changed. Sometimes we're so full of our own expectations and desires that we have no room for Christ to reveal himself to us and to fill us, right? Notice it's the crowd who comes to Jesus, empty and hungry and leaves filled and satisfied. It's the Pharisees who come to Jesus already full of what they expect and what they desire and what they want from the Messiah. And it's them who are already full that leave empty and unfulfilled and unsatisfied. You come empty, you get filled. You come full, you leave empty handed, right? That's, that's the tension of the story. That's the tension of the gospel. Now, the Pharisees are not the only one who have some perceptual blindness about this event though. Let's move into scene three together. Mark eight, verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them. Now they had seven basketfuls, right? So somebody messed up, they forgot it. And Jesus says to them in verse 15, be careful, he warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And they discussed this with one another. They're scratching their heads a little bit. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Period. And they're like, I got it. It is because we have no bread. Verse 17, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? 
Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? 12, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? And they answered, seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? You still not understand. That's our final scene. Jesus asks eight questions in a row. Six of them are rhetorical. Two of them, he already knows the answers to. He just wants to hear them say it out loud. If you're a parent, you get that, right? It's just a string of questions here, right? This is, um, he's employing common prophetic imagery that you can find this in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah. The language of hard hearts, eyes but don't see, ears but don't hear. That, that's Jesus speaking prophetically to his disciples as God spoke through the prophets to Israel saying, I'm right in front of you and you're missing me. I'm trying to do something in you and through you and you won't join me in that. You've got the sensory organs, but, but there is something that has blinded your perceptual abilities and you cannot comprehend, won't become part of what I'm trying to do in you and through you. This is what Jesus is saying to his disciples. And he asked them right in this series of, of questions. This is, this is classic rabbinical style of, of teaching, right? He's not gonna spell it out. He's not trying to explain a proposition to them. It's just confrontation with question after question after question. It's an interrogation and you're supposed to wrestle with the puzzle, wrestle with the question and arrive at the conclusion yourself. Jesus is like, you do the work. I'm gonna confront you with these questions. You process it through, think it over, mull it over and see what I'm trying to say to you. And if you were wise, if you have eyes that see and ears that hear, you'll know exactly what I'm trying to communicate to you. But if you don't wanna see it, if you don't wanna hear it, if your heart is hardened to it, then you'll miss it. That's Jesus's challenge. That's Jesus's confrontation to his disciples. It's basically just an invitation to a wrestling in the inner life, an interior examination. And what I would say to us is this, what Jesus is offering to his 12 disciples in the boat 2000 years ago is what Jesus offers to us each and every day. It's what he's offering to us in this very moment to have a confrontation with our own self, to wrestle with the questions that Jesus is putting on our hearts, to attempt to let go of what we want and expect from Jesus and to hear his voice afresh, to be attentive to his spirit, to desire his presence and power so that we could comprehend and become part of what he wants to do in the world in us and through us. And we've got to wrestle with our inner life in order to be able to perceive and to do that with Jesus. So we've got to ask ourselves questions like, is my attention misdirected? Am I focused on things that don't matter? What's Jesus been saying to me in my life? Is there anything that Jesus wants me to notice? How do we become a people who listen and respond and who are attentive to the spirit of God working in the world? That's what we're after. That's what Jesus wants for his disciples. What he's, he's, he's teaching them into this, right? So let's ask the question then. What is specifically the failure of the disciples that Jesus is trying to provoke them to realize? If we're following your notes. The error of the disciples is to be more preoccupied with material concerns than spiritual realities. 
Now, I'm sure there's a number of ways of articulating precisely what the disciples' issue is, but that contrast between the material concerns of spiritual realities is of central importance in this context. Jesus is telling them, beware the yeast of the Pharisees. Some translations will, will translate that as the leaven of the Pharisees. All right, beware the yeast, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Now, yeast or leaven in those days is a common metaphor for something small that over time can grow into something big and pervasive. And usually, not always, but usually it's something bad, something scary, something dangerous, something corrosive, like hypocrisy or false teaching. It's something that you, you let a little bit of it in and it can get out of control real, real fast. Right? Paul's way of speaking about this in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Today, we might say something like, it only takes a single flame to start a fire. There's, there's something small. So Jesus is telling his disciples, if you wanna be free of leaven, free of whatever this, this dangerous yeast is, right? Free of whatever is corrosive and bad, you must pay close attention to the small things. Be on guard, be alert, be sober-minded. And this is precisely the disciples' problem. They're inattentive to all of that. They do not carefully observe the real concerns that Jesus wants them to focus on. They don't perceive him. Jesus is warning of a spiritual danger to be aware of in their lives, in their formation. And they think that he is talking about not packing a lunch, right? They've missed the boat. They have confused. Jesus is like, guys, have I ever shown concern, worry about your meal planning abilities? Have I ever, you know, got on your case because you didn't pack enough bread or fish? Have we ever lacked for anything? Have I, have I left you hungry or have I filled you and everybody out of compassion and given more? Have I given an abundance, right? He's, he's like asking these questions. Think through this, right? But they're inattentive to what really matters in their own lives. So they can't see it. They think in, in, in human, literal, physical, material train of thought. And you and I can tend to do this too. We tend to focus on the material concerns of our everyday lives, our ambitions and dreams and hopes and desires. And sometimes we miss and we're inattentive to what God is actually trying to draw our attention to in the spiritual realm, right? The word that he wants to give to us, the calling he's trying to place on our lives, the sin he's trying to convict us of, the community he's trying to draw us into, to give ourselves to, learn from, the mission that he has for us. How many of us in our lives are, are, are giving focus and attention to material concerns while neglecting the weightier spiritual matters of the kingdom of God? Like, like fathers and, and mothers and right parents, like would it be said of you that you taught your kid how to drive a car and mail a letter and type a college admissions essay, but you didn't teach them how to study the scriptures and immerse themselves in a life of prayer? Could that, could that be said? Or if you're a student in the room of any age, could it be said that you were really focused on the next tournament, trophy, state title, whatever, but you never uh, diligently gave yourself trained in the disciplines of righteousness and of faith? For all of us in the room, is what really matters, uh, the big house, the nice car, the uh, ample uh, funds in the bank account or the retirement account, is it the next sexual experience or vacation destination, social media curated image? Is it our reputation, our trendy wardrobe? Are those the things in life that really matter for us? And yet we give so much consideration to these things. 
And so when God actually wants to speak to us about what's of utmost importance, we miss it. We translate. We're not listening. We're not focused. We're not, we're not seeing. You're following your notes. Where your attention rests, there your loyalties lie. Where your attention rests, there your loyalties lie. What you give yourself to in thought, what you, what you, you hold your thoughts on, your attention, your gaze, that shapes and affects your allegiance, your fidelity to King Jesus. And part of what we need to understand as disciples of Jesus is that the worst things that can happen to us in life do not concern our, our budget or our job or our body and health or even our loved ones. Right? The worst things that can happen to us are not about those material concerns at all. Not because, listen, not because God doesn't care about them. God is, is so loving. I, I used to have a, a teacher that would say this to me. God is so loving that, that what matters to you matters to him. And we believe that, we affirm that. But let me also qualify and add on to that. God so desires our faithfulness that what matters to him ought to matter most of all to us. That's what he's calling us into. I think if, if you know, I could restate what Jesus wants his disciples to see that they're missing, it's this. You're following your notes. A hard heart is more worrisome than an empty stomach. Don't be so concerned about the lack of bread. There are bigger things at play, bigger realities to become aware of and attentive to. And it's because we know that Jesus cares for our bellies that we can give our focus and give our attention to that which is truly important in life, to that which actually matters and endures into eternity. If our attention's not gonna be fixed on Jesus, not gonna fix on those things, we're going to become like the Pharisees and like the disciples in their own way, self-deluded, living an illusion in our lives. And here's the self-delusion of disciples, it's this, right? They take Jesus' concerns and they reimagine them in terms of their own concerns. They take the things that Jesus cares about and through a little bit of interpretive alchemy, they make Jesus say something he didn't really mean. We're really good at this. We just all the time with the Bible, with the spirit of God speaking in the quiet places of our lives. We just translate and transform what God wants to say into the things we naturally already believe and care about so that God ends up fitting our own prior, uh, you know, prior expectation of who he is, our preconceived notions of what he's supposed to say and do. So we can never really take him seriously. Jesus says, love your enemies, love your enemies. And we think that is a wonderful sentiment, Jesus. I am sure that is a really, really wise, wise thing. But of course, Jesus didn't actually mean, it doesn't actually apply to that idiot at the customer service department or that jerk on the freeway. But no, 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 he, he actually meant that person, right? He's not just talking about empires and nation states. Like, who are the people that we need to love that for whatever split second moment in our lives, we, we've opposed them, they've become an enemy to us. Like, could, could we perceive what Jesus actually would mean for us in our own lives? Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations. And we think, Jesus, man, that, whew, wow. I bet a, a pastor and a missionary and a monk and a priest really needed to hear those words. What a lovely job description for professionals. Could it be possible that Jesus meant that for you? What if he actually meant what he said? Not for a select few, not for the other, but for you. If I could say you 400 times or what, I, I would say it, right? <laughs> for you. Jesus says it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Oh, this is a good one. We think Jesus was basically a pre-modern philanthropic capitalist. And he wants me, as I go about accumulating as much wealth as I possibly can for myself, just to forget not to tithe. And that's all he's really concerned about, as far as my money goes. But is it? What if Jesus means what he said, and we need to pay close attention to the spiritual danger of greed and what money and material concerns can do in our own lives. And he wants us to give like focused attention to that so that our soul is not corrupted by the pursuit of the things of this world because he knows how much it will cost us in eternity. Maybe we need to give some consideration to these things, right? Here's the thing. It's the perennial mistake. It's the perennial mistake of like all religious behavior to to take what Jesus said And then to translate that and to say, but what he really meant was, we do this all the time. And Jesus wants us to be more aware, to have eyes that see and to perceive what he's actually saying. Uh, The late pastor, Eugene Peterson, he is talking about his church, his experience as a pastor. And he says this at one point. He says, America and suburbia and the ego compose my parish. Most of the individuals in this amalgam suppose that the goals they have for themselves and the goals God has for them are the same. It's the oldest religious mistake, refusing to countenance any real difference between God and us, imagining God to be a vague extrapolation of our own desires, and then hiring a priest to manage the affairs between self and extrapolation. I mean, come on, that's good, right? I mean, he's like, All these different things, like our lives are attuned to our culture in such a way that we miss the radical countercultural way of Jesus and what he's calling us into. We don't perceive him. We're lulled to sleep by the material affairs of ordinary life. And my question is, what would it take for us to wake up, to be shaken loose from that, to become radicalized for the kingdom of God so that we would know what Jesus says is what Jesus means, follow him in obedience, give him our fidelity, give him our worship, give him our attention, understand who he is, comprehend what he's asking us to do and to be. Could we see Jesus? Could we see Jesus? That's what Jesus wants for his followers. Now, I don't know about you, but this is hard for me. I've been so convicted this week, even just feeling like I go through the motions so easily, come into church and do business as usual and sit in my seat and sing the songs and bow my head and nod along. Right? And I go into work and even when I'm doing something I'm passionate about, you know, I'm not always desiring the presence of God. It's just work sometimes. And the Lord's been showing me and teaching me as I'm preparing for this message. Another thing is going on in my life. Uh, sermons, another teaching I've been hearing, conversations I've been having. Luke, can you desire my presence? Are you hungry for my power in your life? Do you actually want my voice? Or are you just on autopilot? That's for me. What is it for you? Is Jesus trying to open your eyes to something to allow you to come into confrontation with yourself, to do the interior examination work so that you could see him and see yourself a little more clearly? If you do that, it will be a little painful, but it's the best thing for you. It's what we all need. Uh, Pastor Rich Velatas, in his book, The Deeply Formed Life, he quotes author Andreas Herbert. He says this, Christians have confidence that Christ has lived through all the abysses of human life and that he goes with us when we dare to engage in sincere confrontation with ourselves. 
Because God loves us unconditionally, along with our dark sides, we don't need to dodge ourselves. In the light of this love, the pain of self-knowledge can be at the same time the beginning of our healing. Each week, we partake in a discipline that is meant to, instituted by Jesus to remind us of what's true and of what's important. It's the means by which he has brought about the beginning of our healing, right? Communion, Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. Jesus gave this as a gift to his church, a gift to us so that we could examine ourselves, confront what's true about who we are and who God is and what God is doing in the world. And Jesus, when he institutes this meal for his followers, he says, don't just see bread. Don't just see wine. See me. See what I'm doing for you. See what I've done for you. See what I will do. See who I am. See who you can be. That's why this uh, meal, this practice has been at the center of Christian worship for 2000 years, because it's a, a vision adjustment for us. That we take our eyes off of all the concerns of our world and our lives. And for a moment, we just focus in and through the eyes of faith, we perceive Jesus. That's what we want. That's what we want to see him as he is, to hear him, what he would speak to us. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church, visit our website or find us on Facebook. Have a great day.